We want to know more about our Savior. How do we do that? We listen to him. So we will have the first reading from Isaiah. The first reading is taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good evening. Tonight's second reading comes from Romans chapter 15, verses 4 through 13. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope 
fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Third reading today is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 3. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Matthew, chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who is spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothing was made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brew the vipers who warn you to flee from the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up Children for Abraham, the axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering the wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we, I ask the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart may be acceptable in your sight, that they may bring blessing and encouragement to your people. We pray that uh, you will strengthen our faith and give us courage in these days. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So every um, year in Advent, there's always one Sunday uh, dedicated, maybe two sometimes, to the life and ministry of John the Baptist. Unfortunately, we don't know a lot about his life And uh, he might be the most mysterious figure uh, in the New Testament. 
And whenever at least I read about John, I always uh, have this, um, this, this incredible desire to know more. Yes, know more about not just his origins, but how did he get in the desert? Uh, was what other, uh, what other uh, things did he have to say? How many disciples did he have, et cetera, et cetera. But unfortunately, we don't know very much uh, about John. And very often, we don't often uh, consider him to be very important. We, in fact, sometimes you might say underplay or even underestimate uh, his uh, role uh, as a forerunner. I've said it before, but it's, I think it's worth repeating that, I think it's worth repeating that John the Baptist wasn't just sending out Evites. The Messiah's coming, we're gonna have a party. Yes, will you attend? Yes, no, maybe. Okay. That's oftentimes the impression we have. He's just there to somehow announce the coming of the Messiah and people, um, people need to be uh, somehow, um, somehow need to be intent attentive, or need to indicate that they're going to show up, you know, at the messianic, at the messianic event. But I think the message of John the Baptist is relevant, of course, not only in the first century, and it's relevant for us uh, in the future but it's also very relevant for us uh, in, our present, uh, in, our, in our present day. I don't think we maybe fully appreciate, yes, John's um, connection uh, with the Hebrew Bible. We often, uh, yes, we can connect them with Elijah, but do we connect them with the many prophecies, right, that are found in uh, found in the book of Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah, especially in his second half, uh, tells us over and over again that God is going to do a new thing. Now, I know the Pentecostals like to use this term, God is doing a new thing. God is doing a new thing. But in its context, when it, the prophet tells us God is doing a new thing, what he tells us is that God is coming back where God is going to return to Israel, to return to the Jewish people. And um, God is going to come and bring restoration, but not only restoration, not only uh, healing and recompense, but God is also gonna come and dwell with his people in a way in which he's never done before. And I think if we, all of us know, uh, the Hebrew Bible well enough. We all remember that when Ezra, in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, when they rebuilt the temple, the glory wasn't there like it was in the first temple. And many people had to quest, even had to ask the question, has God fully returned with us from exile? I mean, God's never left his people, but where is God's glory? And of course, this was a question that people were asking uh, upon their return from, uh, 
from Babylon. And so this, I think this understanding that God is going to come and that God is going to bring uh, restoration and that God will bring his presence in a way that has uh, been unknown is the message of the gospel. It's the, really, it's, it's summed up in the, kingdom, uh, in the kingdom of heaven. And when John the Baptist is the actual, he's the, you might say, the forerunner or the one who's announcing the coming of the Messiah, it's not simply that the Messiah is coming to, to, to forgive our sin or coming, quote unquote, to save us. As salvation is not being saved, uh, is not the end goal, right? So what salvation does is it leads to God's presence. And I think this, um, you might say, salvation and imminence is well seen in the opening chapter of Matthew. When Jesus is born, you have an angel that appears um, before Jesus is born. G uh, an angel uh, appears, and the angel says to Joseph, don't, take, uh, don't be afraid, take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, yes, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from his sin. Yeshua from Yehoshua. God saves. Yes, Jesus is the Savior. And we latch on to that. Wonderful. Very good. But what does the next verse say? It says, And he took, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Yes, this good news, right, or this restoration that's coming to Zion and then ultimately to the whole world is first and foremost salvation from sin. It's restoration, but it's also that God is coming to dwell with us and to dwell with his people. And the message of John the Baptist is preparing people for this. But how do you prepare people, yes, for this intimate, right, relationship with God, for God wanting to, to come and to dwell in the midst of his people? I don't know if you've noticed, but a good portion of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, deals with the issue of purity. It's whether it's purification from sin and purification from death. And when there, the, there is forgiveness of sin, when the people of Israel stay away from death, then God can dwell amongst his people. But where there is sin or rebellion uh, and there's a refusal on the, on the part of the people of Israel to um, remain in a state of cleanness, not physical cleanliness, but to remain in a state of cleanness, like going to the ritual immersion bath when they come into 
um, contact with death in any form, then God dwells amongst his people. Years ago, I read this verse. I don't know why I didn't see it, but it's become literally just about one of my favorite verses in the Torah, the first five books. And it's in Exodus, (coughs) excuse me, Exodus 29. And it says, the Lord says, so I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. Why will God now come and dwell amongst his people? Because he has provided the priesthood, he's provided the tabernacle, he's provided the, 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 the sacrifice, this is, etc., etc., for sin. They will know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the brought them out of Egypt. Again, what's the purpose of the Exodus? Or what was the purpose of their salvation or their deliverance? And what's the purpose of our deliverance? Not only that we can go to heaven and say that we're saved, so that I might dwell among them, so that we can know the presence of God and have intimate fellowship and relationship with him, right? This event, right, this event that John is announcing is is an event that comes and begins a reversal of all that went wrong in the book of Genesis. And what went wrong in Genesis? Well, we all say Adam and Eve sinned. Yes, Adam and Eve sinned, but also death came into the world. And so too, in chapter six of Genesis, did the demonic. And this restoration, yes, this restoration is dealing, yes, this messianic task is dealing with sin, death, and the demonic. But how, how does this purity take place? How are people going to be prepared, right, for God doing this new thing, which will be uh, in and through his son, yes, the Messiah. The purification happens through repentance. And that's why John's preaching a message of repentance, that repentance and redemption are intimately tied together uh, throughout the scripture. There are numerous examples. One that we've mentioned uh, more than once and probably is worth mentioning again, is that in the, uh, in the year of Jubilee, the 49th year, this, this, the uh, seven sabbatical years times seven sabbatical years, when there is a restoration, yes, when people who are in debt, people who are somehow maybe enslaved or uh, uh, because of their debts, those that have sold their land, all is restored and goes back to the way that God originally intended things. But when does this, when does the year of Jubilee begin? The year of release, yes, the, uh, the year of redemption. It only begins on Yom Kippur. It only begins after repentance, okay? Secondly, I mean, again, the verses are too many, uh, too many to mention. 
But Isaiah 59 tells us the following. And by the way, if you really want to know the Bible of Jesus, then study the book of Isaiah. Yes? Um, Isaiah 59, 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declared the Lord. So there is this connection between repentance and redemption. And it also, I think it illustrates um, why Jesus went out to be baptized by John. It's always been a dilemma. It's always been an, a problematic for the church, I think beginning with the, even with the gospel writers themselves. And it's maybe that they don't understand that what John was preaching was not simply individual repentance, come and you have to repent for your sins. He was pre preaching a repentance on behalf of the nation that those who were sinful or not went out and, and repented on behalf of the nation. And through the act of repentance, genuine repentance, they're calling on God or saying to God, we send redemption. We are preparing ourselves to receive you. We are purifying ourselves so that uh, the work that you want to do in us, through us, uh, can actually begin. And here I think it's worth, I think it's worth uh, paying attention to this Jewish Hebraic concept of redemption. Because if you look at any New Testament dictionary, they're going to tell you what, sorry, uh, repentance. If you look at any New Testament dictionary, or, yes, or Strong's, what does it mean to repent? Repentance is just changing your mind. That's the literal definition. But uh, I would like to remind everyone that uh, Jews who wrote the New Testament, yes, may have used a Greek word, metanoia, but that's their understanding of repentance is tshuva, shuv, to return, to turn around, to go a different direction. Yes, just what the word literally means is not, I, I'm, I'm convinced, not what the Jewish writers of the New Testament had in mind, right? Repentance here is a U-turn. It's not necessarily regret. It's not feeling sorry. You know, those are these. Those are okay, right? It's actually deciding to change one's life, to turn around, and to go in a different direction. And in the process, we very often avoid God's discipline or God's judgment. We're going to spend a year in the book of Matthew, and Matthew is a really, really Beautiful book. It is full of God, is full of, of uh, compassion. It, it mentions the compassion of Jesus more than any other gospel. Uh, we have Jesus telling us, you know, or, or mentioning, all you who are weary and burdened, come to me, I will give you rest. And there are many other uh, sayings like this. There's also a number of sayings that talk about judgment and talk about uh, facing the consequences of our sins. 
And sometimes people find it very difficult to, you know, or paradoxical to somehow, you know, to hold these two things in tension. But that, okay, that is part of repentance. And John here is warning, John is warning the consequences, um, the consequences of, of, um, of, not, of not repenting. But his, his message, in John chapter three, is repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Same message Jesus begins in chapter four of John. John 4, 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, right? And what is, the, what is this kingdom of heaven? It's simply God working in and through Jesus and God beginning to take control, yes? Uh, God beginning to be present in human history um, in the way that he has never done before. Yeah, where when God is present, in this case, and through his uh, uh, through his son, he asserts his authority, right? And in that process, there begins restoration. Begin not only just not just uh, restoration, but of course the presence of the Lord. And so, in all of this. The goal isn't simply re repent. It's not, you know, we don't repent for the sake of repentance. People like, like to, you know, you got to preach repentance. Okay, pre I'll preach repentance. But what's, what's the end goal of all of this? The end goal is that repentance is not, by the way, it's not some kind of nice form of self-improvement, right? Or um, self-help. Right? I'm going to change. I'm going to change my eating habits. I'm not going to eat carrot cake anymore, you know, <clears throat> because carrot cake makes me fat. I'm going to exercise twice a week, and I'm going to cut down my, uh, my Facebook time by 30 minutes a week. Look, repentance, the goal of repentance is holiness. Holiness, so that why? So that we can know the full benefits of a relationship with the Lord, right? So that we don't miss out on all the wonderful things that he may have for us, right? Without holiness, no one can see the Lord. Holiness is the, the purification, right? Purifying ourselves to be a people in which the Lord can dwell and of course, Paul uses the same image in Ephesians, does he not? When he talks about two ethnic groups that really can't get along very well with each other. But once they come to a place of peace, right? Once they come to a place of living in a biblical unity, then what happens? That people, unified people, becomes a holy temple being built up, right? Being a place where being, place where the, being the place where the Lord can dwell. That's the message of John the Baptist. It was a message for then. It's a message 
for the future because Jesus, John, Jesus, and throughout the New Testament, yes, repentance and, uh, is not just a one-time event, it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. I have to, may I remind you that Paul, when he's, at, when he's speaking to the wise men of Athens, says, now God has commanded men and women everywhere to repent. The age of ignorance is over. And uh, he, Paul, like John in this passage, attaches repentance to a future judgment. Yes. Or Jesus is in the book of Revelation, speaking to Christians, five of the seven churches, the message is repent, repent, including, you know, the most famous, the most famous passage that uh, is used, at least when, uh, when I, was, I was a youngster, I remember the uh, people giving out tracts or some, some giving sermons to the church of Laodicea, right? And it says, um, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Wow, that's real intimacy with the Lord. The Lord is knocking. But the first, the, it's very nice, but nobody take, not very many take it in context. Yes, it's written to a church. It's written to a group of Christians. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Again, intimacy, blessing, God's power, God's work of restoration is very often, not always, because you can't make a total point, tied to, yes, to our purification, which comes through repentance, which comes with a determination, yes, has to be our first, I don't know if it has to be first, has to be something that we have to have a vision for and something that we desire. And once we have that desire, once we understand the benefits of repentance and holiness, then God often gives us a gift. He gives us the grace and enables us to make that U-turn and to begin to walk and live in a different direction. I think the other thing I'd like to say about the passage is just something about the place where John the Baptist was. John was a man who had a very popular ministry. He was, much, at one time, he was far more popular than Jesus. He could have easily filled the stadiums of the, of the Holy Land, um, places like Caesarea. But um, John uh, eschews popularity. He doesn't. He doesn't have a private jet. <clears throat> he doesn't have a YouTube channel. He doesn't have a mailing list of thousands of supporters. <clears throat> He's in the desert. He's in the desert. And the passage, the scriptural passage in all four Gospels, right, for the ministry of John the Baptist is taken from Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare 
the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Probably the better meter, the better way to read the verse um, is the voice of one calling um, in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. What is, how is John preparing this way for the Lord? It's through the preaching of genuine repentance. Again, not just feeling sorry and saying, I repent, but having a, a sorrow or a regret that leads to a changed, leads to a changed lifestyle. But you may, remember or recall that the, the desert or the midbar for the Bible, or for those who write the Bible, is not a very attractive place. It is a very, it's a horrible place. It's a place of death. It's a place where you can easily get lost. It's a place where you can starve to death. You can be washed away by a flood. You could fall off the side of a, of a, of a cliff. You can be attacked or eaten by wild animals. And uh, nobody in the Bible tends to want to go into the desert. They want to live the equivalent in those days of the American dream. It's called the Israelite dream. Everyone wants to be in their own village, under their own vine and their own fig tree, you know, jostling their grandchildren on their knees. And those who are sent into the desert, all of God's, you might say, big heroes of the Bible, almost all of them are driven into the desert. And they're driven into the desert to be tested or they're driven into the desert to learn something, to hear God's voice, or yes, to learn that God can provide, that God can provide even a table in the wilderness when things look quite stark, or things don't look humanly possible. After all, it's easy to trust God in a country that has Amazon, delivering by drones, all right, or, or large supermarkets or shopping malls, yes, but can we trust God in a place of scarcity, or do we panic or become hysterical? So John is in this desert. He's in a place of trial. He's in a place of testing. He's in a place, you might say, that's not very comfortable, it's a place of danger. You know, again, wild animals, no law and order. Uh, you can easily be killed and no one will take, uh, take much notice of you. And it's in this place of danger or in this place of insecurity that redemption comes. Yes, this is where, not only, this is where Jesus shows up. Yeah. This is where John the Baptist yes, is preparing people um, for, for this event. And I, th I think, or I hope, as we read in our second reading, when it says, these things are written for our encouragement, 
that we can take encouragement uh, from all of this. That oftentimes in a place of trouble, right, in a place of danger, in a place that uh, might look um, humanly impossible, right, that God is at work. And uh, it's in the midst of this kind of, uh, it, it's, you might say it's in the midst, midst of our difficulties. It's in the midst of our struggles with health or struggles with family relationships or difficulties with our finances, right, that God speaks, right? And why does God, what, what is it that, about difficulties that allows God to speak? Well, God is always speaking, but generally we're not listening. And the reason we don't listen is because everything is going too well for us. And we have meetings to go to and uh, committees to sit on and uh, we have parties and events, et cetera, et cetera. And when things are going well, we don't listen very well, do we? The minute things start to go wrong is all of a sudden, Lord, your servant listens. Your servant listens. That's what often happens in the desert, right? And it's also from the desert. It's also from our, when these trials or tribulations or difficulties where the Lord will oftentimes woo us, bring us. And um, I like the passage in Hosea. And Hosea tells us after Israel's been punished, right? After Israel's been disciplined, the Lord says about Israel, and one of the few positive passages in the entire Hebrew Bible about the desert, he says the following. He says, um, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, okay? You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. Israel's gone through a time of discipline or a time of punishment. And that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that move uh, along, along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lay down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and will acknowledge, and you will acknowledge the Lord. But how does the passage start? Therefore, I'm going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came out of Egypt. Right? And I think that the ministry of John the Baptist not only reminds us that repentance is, is, should be a, uh, a lifestyle, but also reminds us that when we find ourselves uh, in very, very difficult places, that instead of becoming dismayed 
or even heartless or faithless. Instead of saying, like the children of Israel in Psalm 78, ha, can the Lord prepare a table in the wilderness? I doubt it, they were thinking. And to look to the Lord and to look for his redemption. And sometimes our places of difficulties or times when we undergo discipline or testing from the Lord can be places can be a place of hope and can be a place where ultimately the Lord allures us, speaks tenderly to us, and continues this work, yes, of restoration and this work of being present with us in the most intimate ways. This is the message of the kingdom of heaven, right? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And... Um, it works in when times are really good and going well for us. It works in times of difficulty, not just personal difficulty, family difficulties, church difficulties, national difficulties. Yes, national difficulties. All of these things should make us turn to the Lord and listen. Yes, a voice of one crying in the desert, in the midst of our difficulty, our hardship, our disappointment, right? Prepare the way for the Lord. Notice it was those people from Jerusalem who were quite comfortable and quite secure in a false identity that come under John's condemnation, yes, and who will end up eventually missing, right, the work uh, that God does through um, his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you will help us, teach us to be sensitive. Lord, we ask that in the midst of difficulties, whether it's difficulties with our health, Lord, whether it's disappointment with our politicians and the way that our nation uh, is heading, Lord, we pray that we will look to you and that we will find your redemption and uh, never forget that uh, you wish to bring us to a place right, that we can become intimate with you, that you will be a husband and that uh, indeed we will be your wife. We pray, Lord, that we can be faithful in all these things and that always you will give us the grace and the gift, Lord, to admit our sin and to repent, and Lord, and to seek your transformation in our lives. And do you ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.